Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sanjo Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sanjo Gall. Hello, and welcome to CTN. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And today's topic is transforming healthcare with Gen AI, which is generative AI. Now, what is this talk? What what is this whole talk about generative AI? We all know it is it is changing the lives and how we do business, or potentially will do business and live our lives. However, when we are talking about generative AI in healthcare, it is bringing a lot of changes, and it has potential to bring a lot of changes. It is supposed to help from patient diagnosis to making sure that we are able to do that quickly and more accurately. But then at the same time, we also want to make sure that we maintain and preserve our trust in the doctors. And the goal here is also to see if we can personalize the treatments uh, for the patients, but not jeopardize the privacy. And frankly, it can help in improving and streamlining a lot of healthcare workflows and, you know, for that matter, predict the disease outbreaks and help all of us in preventive, preventative health care. But you know what? As these changes happen, we got to think and, and ask ourselves, how can we ensure that this whole Gen AI revolution, if you will, if it is going to be used to make medical decisions, they are going to be fair. And then when we are going through this transition period and we've got different stakeholders like, for example, the healthcare professionals, the AI researchers, the ethicists, and the other Gen AI pioneers and, and business entrepreneurs, if you will, how do we get them all to collaborate to improve the healthcare outcomes, the efficiency, and the overall patient experiences? Well, quite a tall order, but people are at it. And to that end, we have uh, very good, experienced, and people who are neck deep in making this happen and trying within their organization. And I'll start with Michael Hasselberg, uh, Chief Digital Health Officer with the University of Rochester Medical Center. Hey, Michael, how are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to have you, sir. And we also have James Forrester, Chief Technology Officer and Associate Vice President, Information Technology with the University of Rochester Medical Center. Hey, James, how's life? Good morning. Very good. Thanks for having me. Great to have you, sir. And we have Lisa Nelson, Chief Applications Officer and Associate Vice President of IT Applications with the University of Rochester Medical Center. Hey, Lisa, how are you Hello. doing? Good, good. How good, are you? Good. So very good. Very good. Life is good. God is kind. So I'm enjoying. And this conversation is going to be eye-opening, I'm sure, because you guys are living this Gen AI dream and also trying to make a difference while, you know, uh, playing with the technology which has come out. Now, before we get into anything else, because Gen AI is so new, so disruptive, it really has made some people nervous. And then there are a lot of times when people don't understand it fully, which could be an end business user or someone who's at the very top in terms of the business management or the organizational leadership. This may not sit very well with them. So let's start there. So let's start at the top. So when you are looking at the organizational leadership and when you are trying to have them come sponsor and support, 
and help facilitate the transition towards Gen AI. How is that happening in your organization and how are you seeing this happening across the board in the healthcare industry? So, Michael, this is for you. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that is very unique for us and for we're really excited is we have a true kind of innovation incubator um, at the University of Rochester for the health system. And it's not a research shop. Um, it's, it's truly to kind of evaluate frontier technologies, um, and see where the potential pitfalls are of those technologies and where they could be quite transformative. And we've been doing this for seven, eight years. This innovation team has been around. So of course, you know, you know, six months ago when, you know, generative AI really became a thing and became public, like this, course went right to the innovation team like we we dove in deep in parallel to that you know of course you know we had our trustees at our university trustees on our our medical center board coming to my colleagues uh, lisa and jim saying like what's the governance uh, for this you know we need to be thinking about this not only in healthcare but also you know we're a university you know how is this going to impact um education so my team had the purview of really digging in deep with with these models, seeing again, you know, where do they start to fabricate? Where do they hallucinate? But you know, where where could we um, tackle low hanging fruit to kind of transform our system now? Well, Jim and Lisa really kind of took the lead, um, working with our boards, thinking about what that governance process may look like. So, Jim, when you look at the, the dynamics within the organization and, and Michael is definitely, uh, you know, working with the management and I'm sure you have a direct line and or direct visibility into all that is going on. How are you planning your conversations with people upwards, downwards and sideways so that you can do your job well and get Gen AI to reach the potential it can? Yeah, I mean, it, so it really starts with enterprise risk management. So, we, we, there's tremendous opportunity with, with this technology. But, uh, just like with anything, we have to start it with, with balancing that technology against the risk. So we, the, it starts with open conversations with the leadership throughout the organization, starting in our boards with what are the risks, thinking about bias and discrimination, copyright infringement, lack of transparency, over-reliance on the automation. Um, you know, privacy and data privacy and security. So just laying those out and having open, transparent conversations. As Michael said, the, the great thing uh, about the University of Rochester Medical Center, we're part of the university. We've got expertise in-house that really understands these things and understands them well. So facilitating conversations, laying out in a very simple way for our leadership, for our executive leadership and our respective boards. These are the risks. Here are some frameworks that we consider to leverage. You know, NIST already has a framework out there. Let's not overcomplicate this. Let's make this, you know, um, uh, relatively simple so that it doesn't become bureaucratic in our way for adopting the uh, technology, but um, just have open conversations on those risks. And at the same time, realizing that the technology can be used against us too. So, uh, you know, we have to address that. And how do we stay a- ahead of that from a from a cybersecurity perspective? So, Lisa, when you look at the domain that you lead, which is the application portfolio, if you will, and 
when the rubber meets the road, when people look at how generative AI is truly making a difference, they will essentially be doing it through your domain. What is the ask from the top? What is the concern and or reservation from the bottom and sideways, which you are looking at when you're trying to introduce Gen AI, because it could make the user nervous, the family member nervous, the patient nervous, the business unit leader nervous as you go about rolling these out, while on one hand they say this is cool, but at the same time they are unable to trust it. What's your, what are the parameters that are governing your decisions and the way you shape these applications? Great question. I think we have very strong IT governance, which has actually laid the foundation for these because believe it or not, very similar to um, other industries, there's a new product every single day. And I have an email that comes across saying, I need to have this and I need to have it now because some representative, they saw it at a conference, uh, their friends using it. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I really look at is, we need to have a framework of a strategy um, for the reasons that Jim pointed out. We know that Michael's doing innovation. I, ideally, I would love from an application owner piece to have one application or a couple of very strong applications that then we could spread. But the technology is changing so quickly in the space. Um, we need to kind of keep an eye out to what do we do today? Because I don't want to wait because I want to help um, folks. Where are we before this? So we have some generative AI tools that we have been using for years. So when we look at our privacy space, some of our IT security space, um, radiology, some of the revenue cycle, we've been using some of these tools to help with some of our workforce challenges um, or just the fact that there's been an incredible amount of data that people need to to um, to augment these work, the work that people have to do to look at privacy and security. So we're trying to take the wins that we take from there, lay that into our framework of governance that we have overall for IT, and really try to make good strategic investments, which are going to help our our providers. Um, as far as patients, I think patients want it or think they want it. But I really think our focus, at least on our application space in the next six to 12 months, is really going to be focusing on our healthcare workers and places where we in the healthcare system can streamline work and save money so that then those page, those, those healthcare workers can then start focusing on the patient side. Michael, when you're looking at what Jim mentioned and what Lisa is doing, of course, you're aware of it. But then, as you can see, the, the whole landscape itself is very rapidly evolving. We, in fact, are discussing at CTN about hosting national conferences, right, on data and AI and other things. But to be very frank, when we spoke to leaders like you around the country, they said, if you're going to do an agenda formulation for a November conference, wait till October, because you do not know what on earth is going to be new or more or different in this Gen AI space. So are you truly able to present something to your management today and believe that it is going to stay the way it is or it could fundamentally be disrupted in a couple of months, which will not sit very well as because they are looking for some predictability, some roadmap, but your roadmap is dependent on something which is fundamentally new and very, very rapidly evolving. So how are you dealing with this? Amazing question. So 
you know, in, in, in my role, you know, part of what I need to do is lay out the digital transformation strategy for the entire health system. And we used to do that at like five year chunks. You know, now, you know, I'm going back to my boss, one of our chief executive officers and saying like, I have no idea what healthcare is going to look like six months from now. That being said, on the generative AI side, like it's, it, it is literally just getting better from one day to the next. And what really excites me so much about generative AI is now my team has the tools uh, and the foundational models to start building our own solutions to our problems more efficiently, faster, uh, more cost-effective than we've ever had before in the past. And, and I'll give you a really, really good example. And, you know, my, you know, I have a data science team, actually a whole data core in our innovation incubator. We've been working doing data science and machine learning for, you know, seven years. Um, and areas, you know, up to this point that we've been successful have been over on the computer vision side, you know, radiology, dermatology, processing images, kind of predicting, you know, for our, our radiologists, you should look at this image first because there's something in there concerning, you know, that was something that we had a lot of success. And that data you know, it's very structured and systematically collected and set up really nice kind of traditional uh, machine learning models. You know, where we completely failed uh, up to up to, let's say, six months ago was was on the, the natural language side. And, you know, a, a perfect example of a problem that every health system in the country is struggling with and, and clinicians are struggling with our patient messages. And they're just getting worse and worse because, you know, with the whole digital transformation, we have opened up new ways for our patients to get ready, ready access to our, our already stretched physicians. And so we're getting tons of messages that are being sent in. And so about four years ago, you know, right around the start of the COVID pandemic, you know, there was an ask from our leadership down to our innovation incubator. Can you develop a machine learning model to triage patient messages to say, this message should go to a staff member, this message should go to a nurse, this message should go to a physician? Because right now, all the messages are essentially going to the physician. And, we, and I spent a year, I took data science team to focus on this this project. I brought in a whole bunch of primary care physicians to label the data, and we completely failed. We could not build an, a natural language processing uh, model that could reliably sort those messages and do it uh, accurately. Um, and, and so when vendors would then approach me during the COVID pandemic and say, oh, we've got the solution for you. We've solved this. And, you know, my response was like, you're full of it. I know for a fact that you did not solve this because my data has too much variability in it, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the electronic health record. And we could not build NLP models to do it efficiently. Fast forward to, you know, generative AI and it, it was a complete game changer. So we got early access to, you know, GPT-4 in a secured way on our Azure instance, um, you know, with the support of Jim and Lisa to kind of facilitate and get that set up. And we started really actively putting PHI into it to see, you know, what it could do and what it could not do. And we started with the patient messaging problem. So I told my data science team, let's pull up that protocol. Let's redo it. So now 
you know, we've got a model that's already pre-trained for us and, and pre-trained on a trillion plus language parameters, essentially the whole internet. Two days, two days it took us to tune that model to solve the MyChart message triage problem with 97% reliability, 87% accuracy. That is higher accuracy and reliability than my human nurse triaging those messages. It it took two days. And so when you add, when you say that question of, you know, how do I prepare, you know, for six months from now, a year from now, that's only getting better. You know, so, you know, we're just getting more accurate and we're able to expand out to other administrative non-patient facing problems that we are able to solve within hours to weeks versus six months to years of development time where most of that time was spent on training the models to do it. So, yeah, that's kind of, I I think, uh, uh, where my excitement is. And uh, no, I can't predict what healthcare is going to look like six months from now, but I can tell you it's going to look better than it looks today. Can can I just jump in there and, and, and share some? So when, Michael, you know, obviously is very passionate about this. And, and just to reiterate a couple of, of his points, you know, when we, when, when Lisa and I look at our technology portfolio, you know, we have to balance that portfolio in a number of different ways. It's an investment portfolio for the organization. And to this, to reiterate the point that Michael made, we, we always looked with a three year strategic roadmap timeframe with five years, with years four and five being aspirational goals or opportunities. And, you know, three years is two iterations of Moore's Law. So realistically, you, you always had that factor. Now you throw in AI. And, and Michael and Lisa and I were talking before the, the uh, discussion here this morning about the fact that contracts that were signed two years ago that seemed like real opportunities, solid business cases two years ago, are now non-starters. And so we have to change our, our approach to our investment uh, in technology as a whole. Then you throw in some of the background, including the cost of healthcare and the staffing challenges we face, um, and and look at the growing costs of vendors uh, to the technology portfolio, both with the SaaS models and subscriptions in general. And as Michael said very early in his answer, what you know, if you had asked me three years ago about internal development, I would have said we're not a development shop; we don't want to own that technical debt. And as Lisa said, uh, just before we jumped on this call. When we sign up, there's a difference between owning the technical debt and managing the technical debt for sure, but it's, there's still technical debt that, that comes in with really any technology. And the cost of some of these subscription models have changed our, our, our outlook to say, hey, if we partner with some of our uh, other academic medical centers and uh, healthcare delivery organizations across this country, can we do some of these things ourselves? You know, are we going to go out and build a, a whole new EMR? Probably not. But are there a lot of things in our portfolio that, hey, maybe we need to? And and I would just add that, um, you know, at, at Rochester, in our technology governance and our technology advisory council, we're actually forming a stewardship work group that really looks at the technology that's already been implemented out there. And are we getting the full value for it or are there other opportunities? And I think that that more than ever, uh, because of the acceleration of the pace of change with uh, generative AI, it, it, that stewardship obligation to the organization is probably greater than ever. So, Jim, one question for you. Uh, love the fact that you are uh, all together figuring out how to make the best of whatever is coming up. However, 
in your role. You're supposed to make sure that we don't fall in love with our last success. And you look at each subsequent iteration of what is produced by Gen AI with equal healthy skepticism because you got patient's life is at stake. What do you see as the pattern that whenever we say there is a new version of that come out or new uh, change in the engine that come out, is it maintaining that same integrity? Can you literally bet your paycheck without having a certain risk management uh, due diligence performed? And have you ever been disappointed given the journey at least so far? Well, you know, again, it's all about risk and, and thinking about risk in, in meaningful ways, right? And um, I, I love, you know, the way that the Amazon approaches with their, their staff, you know, their, their guiding principles, and they have the principle of bias to act. Well, that's great to have a guiding principle, but you have to have a way to treat, to, to teach the risk. And they do it with their, uh, you know, uh, one-way door, two-way door model. So, you know, right down to the delivery folks can talk about, you know, is it a safe door to go through? You know, can I come back through? And I think just at, at all levels, thinking about the risk that's associated, there are some cases where certainly the risk is too great to, to jump into a uh, new approach, you know, a new um, uh, AI model without going through a rigorous due diligence process. There are other cases where failure is okay and you can fail forward. And, and so this is where the governance and the framework uh, has to be so thoughtful. P- people get very passionate about this. And the thing is, we were talking about something else uh, before the meeting here. Um, I posed a question to Michael a couple of months ago. We were at a meeting, and it has to do with, you know, uh, self-driving cars. And, and do we hold artificial intelligence to the same standard that we hold humans to or to a higher standard? And in the general public, we see they, they hold it to a higher standard. So if if Tesla, you know, uh, or, or some other uh, automated, uh, you know, vendor of an automated uh, car has an accident and there's, there's a death, that's going to make national news, but there's there's deaths due to motor vehicle accidents every single day that, that that do not make national news, and we can expect the same kind of uh, reticence and concern in healthcare, and maybe maybe even more, right? So, if if um, if we're not very careful, there there could be a backlash here against the use of artificial intelligence in healthcare. So. You know, again, it's finding that balance and in, in dealing with those risks and, and making sure that we have a framework and uh, an enterprise risk management approach in place before we engage, especially when uh, patient care is actually at risk. There are a lot of other opportunities, but that may not involve uh, direct harm to patients, um, you know, in, in coding and revenue and things like that. But in those other areas, uh, wherever we're using, in, 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 uh, you, you always have to be aware of the risks and make sure that we're staying on top of those risks. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that, because I would just want to say is, you know, that's a lot of the work that Michael has. He's got an ethicist there because he's actually looking at that patient-facing piece. But when we look at it in the revenue cycle side, part of this is, you know, people are like, aren't you worried that we're going to lose jobs? People's jobs are going to pivot. So maybe I'm not looking through all that, the, those work cues or those things. I'm actually monitoring what the AI is doing. And we've actually seen this in some of our privacy and security stuff where we can see the model learning, but also if there is an issue with it, then there needs to be an escalation. 
So we are kidding ourselves if we think that we're just going to put this in and walk away like we've done with some other technologies. There's going to be new types of opportunities <laughs> and responsibilities as you're, as you're alluding to for all of us to be able to say, what is our, what is the risk management? What is the quality that we're looking at it? And when do you say this is not working or we start to see failures and how do you pull back? Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And Lisa, I'd like to ask this question related to the, the number of changes that could come to you, some the thing is not working or this is something new, new version of Gen AI or some other use cases, people would start throwing these beautiful things at you saying, can you incorporate it? And then you could also have this drowning effect that can happen whenever a new innovative technology is brought to life. It's, it's easy. I will not say easy, easy for Michael and Jim to say, okay, let's paint this new picture. Let's look at what has come. Let's look at this due diligence. But eventually when rubber meets the road, you're supposed to make that application hum so that IT becomes invisible and, and silently help preserve what it is supposed to deliver. Easier said than done, right? And especially when something is moving at that faster pace. So are you able to say no for everybody's benefit when such flood of requirements and, and flood of different things come, even from Michael and Jim and other people from the business. And if you do that, how do you prevent that from IT to get the label of a no set of people or even yes, but set of people and convert them to a yes and without losing the side on the risk and the patient lives? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN. CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIOTalkNetwork.com. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Lisa, you've got a number of different, you know, uh, iterations of the Gen AI coming. So that that's the engine. But at the same time, with the new capabilities, there are new use cases being brought out, and, and you've been requested to see if you can do something about them. And, yes, there would come some description, but I think you have to take the ownership. And you've got a set of mortal souls who are working with you who are supposed to deliver on all of this. And the pace of change is mind-numbing. How do you keep the value creation at a pace which is sustainable and it doesn't create more damage than it could do good? So actually, this is where I rely on on being a pharmacist, right? So I'm a clinical pharmacist by training who kind of stepped over the the hump or the the line when we went to the integrated EHR and got very involved in, in the leadership and the application piece. And so I, I do say no. I, I'm a, I like to be a yes and person in general, 
but we can't do everything. And I've always said, for whether it's delivering patient care or IT things, I'd rather do five things really, really well than 15 things, you know, mediocrely or failing all the time because then you totally lose credibility. And that's where we go back to our governance. So Michael isn't, you know, not only is, does he lead our innovation lab, but he actually sits on our governance. And I will tell him, tell you that he is a provocateur. You know, he, he will say to me, well, what about this? Or this is coming. And he's actually been really great at helping Jim and I explain to our clinicians who, you know, do like shiny things. We're in an academic medical center. So we, what I say is we have a thousand really great ideas and we do, but, um, that, you know, we can't, do everything. It just, nobody can and do it really well. So this is where the landscape is. This is what we're seeing. And we make really strategic in, in investments looking at, you know, so one of the things I think we've talked a little bit about here is really looking at workforce. We, we know the patient direct interaction with AI is coming. Um, but I think we really feel like post pandemic, we need to invest in our workforce our clinicians, not only just our providers and our front facing, but also looking at the back end, um, some of the folks that the nurses at the bedside, looking at things like, you know, that we can use, um, automation and then also keeping an eye on our EHR, right? Because that's a, that's a huge investment as Jim talked about that we've already made and we don't want to be duplicative. So it's really, you know, it's conversations. It's listening to our peers and seeing what's out there in the landscape. It's un, it's explaining that to the governance. It's partnering very strongly with our informatics group, the innovation lab, and some of our strategic operational partners who are willing to put their hand up and say, I want to be a change agent. One of the things I've noticed, you know, post pandemic is that people are completely change saturated. So we have really, um, in addition to this, this shiny new technology, really trying to get integrate change management all the way step of the line. And then also asking, as Jim talked about, to be able to fail fast. There are going to be things when we're, you know, working so quickly that are just not going to work. And so we're going to, you know, it's coaching our IT staff who, you know, just put in a thousand hours on a project and are like, what do you mean this isn't going to be? That they are innovators. Um, and part of that is really, you know, developing a culture within our IT organization. We um, have an all hands meeting where we bring in clinicians to actually explain um, to all of our staff what, how they're supporting the health system, even if it's on the back end on the infrastructure side. We also, you know, have a non-punitive structure. Um, so we don't come at people if things fail, but we learn and do lessons learned from them and really make that very, we really put it out there. It's not just something that happens on a, in a document that sits on some SharePoint site. We really talk about those. Um, and then why we're doing what we're doing, that we could set, sit back and wait for other, um, organizations and be a, a fast follower or sometimes a slow follower, depending on what it is. But we don't want to be that in this space. We are lucky to be involved in a medical center that's involved in a university. We are fortunate to partner with an innovation lab. We are fortunate to be able to partner with other organizations that are on the same EHR or ERP platform across the country that we're able to innovate with. And, and that's why we are sitting in the roles that we are. Um, and sometimes I have to raise my hand in front of a bunch of people and say, yep, we went down a path that we thought, you know, and this is why, but we need to pivot and then also be able to understand and get feedback. And we need to take feedback as leaders and then share that with our IT executive committee. So it's a very robust process. And, you know, I think up until now we've done, I'm pretty fortunate where we are, you know, 
I would love to be able to turn and, and implement all of Michael's um, innovations downstairs. But we also want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that the organization can accept the change and that we can accept the technical debt. Thank you. So, uh, Michael, I'd like to come back since Lisa mentioned culture, right? So I'm assuming that Gen AI just didn't happen within your organization. It was intentional to slowly bring that in. And I'm assuming there would be some definition of cultural prerequisites and not just within IT, but across the organization. What was that cultural prerequisite, if you could define that? And of course, it just did not organically evolve to it, right? There must have been journey where you did work with your business stakeholders to start bringing those cultural shifts. What was the point A and what was the point B and where are you in that journey? So would you say you're fully cooked when it comes to culture to adopt Gen AI and now it's only a matter of wait and watch and adopt or adapt to whatever Gen AI brings to you or you are still somewhere in that journey, you know, uh, building things like almost building a plane while flying it. So is your culture is the same type? So, you know, I think the culture and the innovation side um, has been fairly well established for quite some time. And it's kind of the antithesis of the typical culture you would see at an academic medical center, which can be very hierarchical. So, you know, on the innovation side, there really is no hierarchy. And we don't care if you are an undergraduate data scientist or if you're a chair of a department. When you come into the innovation team, every is as meaningful. And when you, when you think about something like generative AI, where there's so much unknown, right? Like, like there's so much lack of transparency of, of what these models are doing. You know, we need lenses and voices from a lot of different people to kind of understand, like, how do we adopt something like this where there is so much unknown and having a culture in the innovation side where, again, Everybody's voice is important. We all want you to contribute. This is a team effort to figure out, you know, how to use this technology, how to deploy this technology, how to monitor this, this technology. I think we were really well positioned to be very quick of, of bringing this technology in. Now, the other thing that we have with our innovation team, we call ourselves the coalition of the willing. It isn't a, you know, we're open to the entire university. We, you know, we're open to the IT teams, to our clinicians, to our researchers to join in on our, our mission and what we're trying to do. And so we're trying to infuse that culture of breaking down the hierarchy, everyone's voice is important to understand this kind of a, across the institution. And, you know, one of the things that we hold on the innovation team to help kind of infuse that culture, um, and it's actually happening today, is we have a bi-weekly um, generative AI, you know, kind of talk and show uh, meeting that's open to the entire university. Jim's team comes. Jim's been there. We've got chairs of departments and clinicians who come to to you know researchers in our education department or our physics department who come and we just talk about you know the the the, the technology and trying to to get folks uh, excited and, and bought in and so you know I think you know the culture that we had already established in the innovation team was well set up to 
take this technology and kind of run with it. And we're trying to can push that culture out to everybody else uh, around this. So, uh, Jim, when you look at the different technology options, and I think one of the previous responses from one of you was that there are so many people who are coming. I think Michael said that they're so full of it. But at some point, you'll have to start relying because you can't build all the tools and technologies either. What's that landscape looking like, given that you played this and dabbled in it for a little bit? What is it that has become your benchmark or a due diligence process to make sure you do not have a lot of false positives and also false negatives because there could be a potential, but you might otherwise write it off. Yeah. So I I think, you know, um, we've adopted a statement, I guess, of, you know, discover, develop, implement, and uh, not sure exactly where it comes from. I think uh, maybe General Electric or somewhere we, we sat along the way, but that upfront discover is, has really become super important. So, how do we define success and success from the customer perspective? And then what are the KPIs that we're going to use to measure that success? And and then really putting those uh, vendor solutions through their paces because everything looks great in PowerPoint uh, or or the perfect demo, right? So you, you sit through a, a demo with, the, with these vendors and they can do all these great things. Um, but certainly there are also some really great opportunities out there. And, uh, you know, really spending a lot of time in that upfront discovery phase and, and understanding what the tools really can do. And this is also where, um, peer networking comes, comes in and is super critical. You know, who, who's already tried, uh, these solutions or who's looking at these solutions? What, what is their assessment been today? And, you know, um, uh, th- this is where talking to peers across the country. And then frankly, you know, uh, neutral advisors like Gartner and Deloitte now, you know, some of these are kind of niche players and they're, they're really also, um, rapid to the scene. So they, you know, Gardner and Deloitte might not be able to ad- advise on specific, uh, you know, on specific vendor solutions in this space because they're coming at us so quickly. But I, I think really upfront, uh, there's more time upfront now, uh, in assessing the tools and, and really putting them through their paces than, than in, in the past. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in on Jim and I'm going to, kind of take a similar lens, but maybe a little bit different. To be honest, I'm not even really meeting with vendors at this point. I've actually put a pause and told vendors, I'm not meeting with you right now, you know, because I am actually convinced, you know, that we're going to be able to build solutions for our own problems now and not have to go the vendor route like like it, it the, the the generative ai is is that good and and i'm actually to a point where i'm partnering with jim and we're looking at all of our vendor contracts and going where can we rip and replace so like the the building of a tool has never been easier so i'm going to make that clear never been easier for us as a health system to build our own tool Here's where the problem is, however, where we don't have the resources. After we build that tool and turning it on in production at scale in our health system, we don't have all the fire engineers that, that we need to leverage all the APIs to get these tools to collect the data out of our EHR in real time and then put that, that data back up. So that's, that's problem one that, that we have. It's not the actual tool. It's going to be the integration into the EHR uh, at scale. Problem two is 
once we turn on these tools in production um, at scale, we don't have the resources to monitor these tools at essentially every single API call to make sure that it's not skewing to a bias, it's staying robust, it's staying safe, and it's staying trustworthy. And so, you know, where I think the opportunity is and where we're talking with a lot of our peers, both academic health systems and leading non-academic health systems is, as Jim said, where do we come together as health systems to do this? And, you know, one of our real Really close partners is Stanford University, at least on you know the innovation side and the you know chief AI officer side, you know the chief you know digital officer side. We work really really closely with Stanford, and you know Stanford you know has this this kind of really you know exciting idea of essentially spinning out uh, a, a public benefit corporation, where you know what the public benefit corporation will do is it will partner with health systems like us that. We have the capacity in-house to build the solutions. They will take on all the fire integrations in. So let's say, you know, we'll take that off your IT uh, um, department's plates. And, oh, yeah, we'll set up the safety and trust platform on top of that. In partnership, we'll meet with the ONC and the FDA to make sure, you know, the, the models stay compliant. And we'll check at every API call to, to, to make sure that the models are staying safe and trustworthy. You, leading health systems, you create the tools, essentially open source them, give them away, and, you know, we'll take on that integration and safety and trust. Like, that's brilliant. That is where generative AI in this country should go. You know, it should be this kind of open source health systems partnership. You know, we should be peer reviewing these models and, and essentially not the vendors. You know, it's it's not going to be the vendors that is going to solve or, you know, n- not only the startups that are entering this space or the big tech companies. Like, it's going to be the health systems that should drive that. And I think we've never been better positioned to come together to do this ourselves. So I would actually take the lens. It's actually easy now to meet with the vendors. I'm saying, I'm not going to meet with you, at least not right now. I'm going to see what we can do ourselves. Now to that end, um, great point here, Michael. Now, when we talk about not using vendors, trying to do things internally and taking ownership, so Lisa, in your camp, while we could have ethicists, but then on the ground, you got to take care of the security side. You got to take privacy and these things have to be shifted left, which means at the very inception of when you build something or whenever you're taking a look at any new opportunity to introduce a feature or a capability, it has to be a security first culture and a privacy first culture with so many things coming with so much demand. And yes, I like the idea that you're saying no. So you get some breathing room. Are you able to reasonably have all the wherewithal within your team so that you can effectively shift left and make sure that anything that gets put in place and gets and, and the, the physicians and the nurses and, and everyone who is involved in the healthcare ecosystem are able to create value without jeopardizing the very major uh, risks that otherwise could pop up when you do not have privacy and security first approach? So that's, I think, where Jim and I really come in and partner this and come at it at both angles. And it's why we actually split one of the reasons we split the CIO role to to be a co-CIO, me looking at the application side and Jim looking at the CTO side. We have a very engaged CISO and privacy officer, and we have built some very um you know, strict practices where things come in and everything goes through that security evaluation and and their privacy evaluation 
Um, and we also built out our solution architects. So we get a lot of that done up front. And there are times we say no there. So there are times where we've had vendors or we've gone down a, a pathway that somebody wants to do, whether it be AI or another type of technology, and it, it hasn't passed the muster. They don't want to go, um, they don't want to follow some of our security policies. And it's not like we stick our head in the water. I think we have very candid conversations. You would agree, Jim, but then we just, we, we do sometimes have to look at folks and say, this is not a secure, a secure platform and we can't risk the entire organization to be able to support this. Let's look at other options or let's push back on them. And, and sometimes they'll say, Hey, we'll come back in, in, you know, a couple months when, when they do have it. You know, we really do run into issues with some of the biomedical equipment and some of those things. Again, not in the AI space, but where we're constantly pushing our security standards and what we, uh, what we refer to as, is our URMC security standard on those. And, and we are changing workflow. And I guess that's, you know, sometimes it's balancing what we need to do on that security and privacy with, hey, we have this new innovation that we're able to put in so that people see it as less, you know, burdensome. So something like passwords is a good example. Everybody wants a longer, stronger password. Well, that's forcing the organization to say, okay, fine, then we're going to do stuff like Improvada because that's going to allow us to be able to have that high security standard also brings a little bit of innovation to the healthcare space where they don't have to type their password hundreds of times a day, but it's hard. I think, you know, we're going to have, we, part of the, one of the things is just the change saturation of the organization forces us to kind of paw or, you know, to balance things out. And then the other thing where I'm actually seeing a big challenge as we look at some of the stuff and the pace of it is really the keep the business running stuff that we have to do to keep all the infrastructure we already have here. Everybody thinks about all the flash, as I said, the flashy things, and that's very important, but really giving visibility to things like replacing our packs or maybe moving to, you know, a different browser because your EHR vendor says you need to do it by the end of 23 or, you know, other things that, you know, we have to replace a bunch of picks. Like, you know, there are a lot of things that we do in IT that is not necessarily visible to the end user, but when it doesn't work, Right. The Joint Commission just came out with a thing about a Sentinel event about cybersecurity, which just brings around full circle for me as an IT uh, with a clinician background that we need to keep everything humming along. So it is transparent to everybody so that then we can uh, clear up the bandwidth and the and the platform for some of the new technology that we're talking about. Just, you know, I, I would just jump in and add a little bit to that. I, I'm definitely. Uh, a little bit different lens than Michael. I mean, and it's, and that's totally fine, right? Michael, um, you know, he shared his perspective. I, I'm, I'm more, I would call it balanced. I think it's a mix of, uh, of, you know, vendor solutions and, and build your own. I think where, again, where I'm in a different position than I was even three years ago, build versus buy wasn't much of a question for me back then. And, and certainly now it is, but to that privacy and security, I would give a different perspective too in that. Um, just stop and think about with these vendor solutions, um, how much ability do we really have to put them through a privacy and security scrutiny? So just to add to what Lisa said, we do a third-party assessment for sure. We do penetration testing, et cetera. But we all know of a very recent, very high-profile, um, you know, product where a data breach, where data breaches occurred uh, all across all different industry sectors, uh, major businesses, governments, et cetera, Right. And so I think, I think that that one is going to become a case study for one thing in cybersecurity, privacy and, and security. 
but it also is going to really cause everybody to stop and think about how well can we really vet out these um, these vendor solutions from a privacy and security perspective. After all, we can't really get under the hood and do static code reviews. It's intellectual property. And we, as Michael said, we don't have the resources to do that. At least with our in-house solutions that are developed, frankly, we have full transparency under there. The question is, do we have the skills and the knowledge and the resources, you know, to actually apply the, the privacy and security concepts uh, the way that they need to be applied? So I, I think, you know, everything here is, is, you know, we're given this kind of a yin and yang kind of conversation. But I think at least, you know, the question is, do you want to own the risk or manage the risk? And um, I think there's some opportunity here in privacy and security when we when we build um, if, if it's done correctly. Now, when we are talking about all of this, uh, when Michael, when you take this whole profitability side of healthcare, because, you know, I've had so many conversations with healthcare leaders and they all vouch that, okay, there is uh, that emotional connection to that we are impacting patient lives, but there is also a hard reality of the economics of healthcare. So while we spoke about how do you create the outcomes, we take care of the privacy and security, but somewhere in the management, someone would say, show me the money. What have we done to safeguard that interest so that you keep getting support, you keep getting funding and keep do- doing the cool stuff? Yeah. So, you know, on generative AI, the actual show me the money argument is actually pretty easy. And where our innovation team is focused, as I've said few times is the non-patient facing side of house. That doesn't mean we're not building patient facing applications to seeing what, what the boundaries are for those applications. I don't see those going out into production for probably a couple of years, but there is so much waste in healthcare. We have so much waste on the administrative, you know, non kind of uh, uh, patient-facing side that it's just low-hanging fruit that we can leverage generative AI to start cutting that waste out and, you know, giving our clinicians time back to actually see more patients, to do the clinical work that they want to do, that's, you know, generating more revenue, but it's also generating wellness uh, in our clinicians by removing some of the stuff that shouldn't be on their, their plate. So things like prior authorizations, filling out workman's comp and disability forms, like generative AI, solve that. It's like that, like done. Ambient documentation. It's never been easier for us to develop our own ambient documentation tools. Done. You know, showing where the financial argument uh, is for that is, is actually really easy to do. And especially at a time where our workforce has never been more strapped, you know, and, and we have a lot of clinicians, you know, on the ledge of deciding whether or not they're going to leave the profession altogether, you know, improving their wellness and taking off some of that burden. It is a really easy ROI. And so again, going back to that example of, you know, uh, triaging messages, like massive win, especially for, for our primary care uh, a provider team. And so, you know, when we're able to show that we can do that and we can do that really quickly to, you know, 
my boss, you know, it's, it, it just emphasizes why we need an innovation team. But again, the innovation team works really, really closely. I mean, as you see, you know, Jim, Lisa, and I, you know, we, we are, we are attached to the hip. Um, you know, I, 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 I need Jim to help balance me out, uh, uh, you know, and I need Lisa to kind of get, you know, also tell me realistically of like, how can we operationalize this and how do we roll those those applications out? But with this kind of really tight partnership between innovation and IT, it, we've been able to kind of show our return on investment over and over again. Um, and and it's, it's, it's becoming even faster and more apparent with, with the Gen AI tools. And that's where I go to. It's never been easier or more cost effective for us to build. And I was not in a... Uh, uh, build first, even being on the innovation team, you know, uh, uh, Lisa and Jim will know I always championed. We are EHR vendor first. If they had the functionality, you know, we were going to turn it on, you know, even if it was just good enough, if we couldn't find, you know, that functionality or they didn't have it available, we were going to buy the best of breed or partner with the best startup that the innovation team would embrace and bring on. And if we couldn't find the best industry partner, then we would build. That paradigm shift has switched. You know, I think the build has kind of moved closer up to the top. I think it's going to push our EHR vendor to move faster. They're not typically a, an innovator. They don't move fast. I think so us building more was going to push them forward. And then it's really going to, you know, challenge the vendors. You know, we're going to, you know, go back to the vendors and say, stop selling us stuff for kind of low hanging fruit. You should be working on higher level problems. You know, you are better funded than us from VC. And you shouldn't be targeting message, to, you know, triaging messages like they, that. That's that, that's gravy stakes. You should be working on something much harder. We can do that ourselves at this point. So, you know, I think it's actually this whole paradigm shift is going to drive down costs in healthcare uh, in general. And so internally, we've been able to show that ROI. But I think, you know, you're going to start seeing healthcare costs go down as this paradigm shift happens. All right, so I'll take one last question and I'll ask each of you the same question one at a time, which is perhaps you can start responding, Jim, as the first person. In your role as a CTO, with whatever you have seen with generative AI, how it can impact and is impacting the way you're able to do business, what do you see from your vantage point, what's in front of us, what's ahead, and how a leader like you should be preparing? I think... You know, really, it's looking for those opportunities. And the biggest opportunity in healthcare right now, frankly, is, is staff augmentation. Uh, we, we're struggling with staff, with staffing vacancies, uh, with the cost of staff. And, it, it, and I'm not talking about eliminating staff or staffing roles, right? I'm talking about true staff augmentation. How can we provide better care uh, and at, at a reduced cost? And I think looking for opportunities that align in uh, staff augmentation and really then getting governance and policies and procedures in place that provide those guide rails that enable quick adoption and, and quick exploitation of opportunities. I, and not bureaucracy, but just enough that actually facilitates uh, adoption of opportunities when those opportunities arise. Lisa? It's really... Um for me, understanding what's happening in the horizon, I think, you know, as we talked about what's going on, what, you know, what do we already own? It's that, it's that, uh, application 
uh, stewardship. So really under, and where do we have uh, opportunities as we look at what's out there to really, you know, streamline some of our contracts, streamline some of the technical debt we have on the application side, and then really, you know, be able to have a good partnership with informatics and operations and really pace the change management while we look at all the other keep the business running and all the other things we need to do. So it's a, it is a, it's an exciting time. I can have a conversation about, you know, what is our three year plan going to be on upgrades and all the other stuff we need to do. Um, the next hour talk about what's new out there and how can we, um, you know, expedite and do a, a phase one pilot in a behavioral health area with some of the uh, generative AI or documentation tools that are coming out of, out of, Michael and his colleagues' areas. So exciting times, to be sure. Michael. Embrace the technology. The, the world is changing, and the world is changing fast. We can't be fearful um, of, of change. We, d- we need to embrace it. And in order for us to be successful, you know, this is going to be a team sport, and we need to partner. You know, we need to partner with other health systems. You know, we'll need to partner with industry, and we'll need to partner with government uh, to be successful. But, you know, I- embrace the change. Embrace uh, the future. Once again, thank you so much, Michael, Jim, and Lisa, for sharing your thoughts about how organizations can transform their respective healthcare organizations and the healthcare industry in general with generative AI. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, listeners, I hope you enjoyed. Got some nuggets. Please connect with us on social media. Subscribe to our podcast. Once again, for uh, listening to CTN, this is your host, Sanjog Gall, signing off. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.